Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com. For years, I just dreaded going to the dentist. But at Advanced Dentistry, I don't have to. First and foremost, they want you to feel comfortable when you walk in, like you'll feel it. Whereas in the past, I might have gone into the dentist and thinking, I might feel some pain at some point. But with IV sedation, it can be something that you don't dread. If you've been avoiding the dentist because of fear, worry, or just not wanting to be judged, you're not alone. Visit NoFearDentist.com to learn how IV sedation can change your life. It's 2024 and there's so much to do, but it's hard to know where to start. If your decision paralysis has set in, it's now easier than ever to find the volunteer opportunities that are right for you with Vote Save America's brand new Action Finder. You tell VSA the causes you care about, they'll tell you the most high-impact ways to get involved, from your state all the way to the White House. Call it the cure for doom scrolling. Go to votesaveamerica.com slash volunteer to get started. This is DeRay. I'm welcome to Posse of the People. In this episode, it's me, Miles, DR, and Kai talking about all the news with regard to race and justice of the past week that you should be talking about, that you should know about. And we start with the election coverage because it is an election year. And here we go. And make sure to follow us on Instagram at Pod Save the People for more continuous updates about what's going on in podcast land. Here we go. Family, welcome to another episode of Pod Save the People. I am Diara Ballinger. You can find me on Instagram at Diara Ballinger. I'm Miles E. Johnson. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Feral Rapture. I'm Kaya Henderson. You can find me on Twitter at Henderson Kaya. This is Dre at DIY on Twitter. So as we get closer to the election, y'all, we're really going to start doing these like kind of campaign election roundups where we just take some of the snapshots of, of, of news that we're following um, just to keep us all informed about what's going on. So we're, we're not going to spend a lot of time, but it does deserve time, particularly Donald Trump having to pay 83 $3 million in damages to Jean Carroll for defamation comments he made about her when he was president in 2019. He attacked her character um, and kicked off years of harassment and threats from his supporters because they're a mob. Um, and so most of the award is $65 million in punitive damages and jurors can concluded that Trump acted spitefully and wantonly toward Carol after she accused him of sexually assaulting her in the 1990s. So, you know, in May, a civil jury in New York found that Trump sexually abused and defamed Carol and awarded her a combined $5 million in damages. Um, and Trump has appealed that. So this is good news. This is good news. I don't know where this man is going to get $83.3 million from because we know he is not worth that. Um, but it, I think, you know, we're going to we, we've been having a continuing conversation around what does it mean for a former president and now a presidential nominee to have so many cases 
and lose so many cases. So we're going to continue to see. You know, because he has said that his net worth is so high, it is interesting if suddenly he like cannot pay $80 million. It's like you went from being a billionaire to a 500 millionaire to a whatever. So I do like that the amount is totally uh, supposedly doable for Trump, who um, who should be able to pay it. I did see some of the Fox talking points about this for like, you know, the the system is trying to bankrupt us. We won't have our things anymore. It won't be our money. The government is just taking things from people. And I'm like, y'all are Fox. What Fox has done to this country, you know, we are not the first people to say it, but to see people in suits and ties on TV and argue that this defamation lawsuit settlement is a bad thing because the government is taking things away from people is just something else. I guess my very legal focus question is, of course, he's going to appeal, right? Um, But time-wise, could this appeal happen quick enough that he's forced to spend the money and bankrupt his, uh, and bankrupt some other stuff. And basically, can he bankrupt himself and get out this race? Is that, is that, is, is, can that happen? It's, it's, it's... Wait, can you say the question again? Can he bankrupt himself and get out of this race? Yeah, so I know that he's going to probably appeal. So I know that he's going to appeal. So I know that's going to take time too. And I know that this case in of itself took about like five years um, to, to get to any type of verdict. But I'm wondering... Is there a way that this big amount could maybe make a speed bump or redirect his presidential uh, aspirations? Mm. Could, I don't, it, could I, this be I'm a greater win just, for the voting public? <laughs> I think there's just there's so many ways to exhaust it in terms of like what the options are for paying it. So he was ordered to pay her five point five million in a related case, um, and he asked the court. He asked the court, the court actually held that money while the appeal was pending, which I found interesting that he even paid that money to the court. But that was reported in The New mm-hmm. York Times. He can also try to secure a bond. I mean, an $83 million bond. I mean, oh, my God. Um, Because I've had to bond, pay the bonds for some of my cousins. And clearly it was nowhere close to $83 million. So <laughs> trying to secure a, a bond which will save him from having to pay the full amount up front. So it's just like there, there's a ton of different ways, I think, t- to figure out how to pay this. Um, and so I think that's, that's the issue is like, are these cases, even if he is losing them, are they going to slow him down? They're not slowing him down in terms of you know, his base, you know, the impact of his character um, to his base. So it really is, Miles, to your point, like, is it going to somehow tactically slow him down? And I don't yeah. know. Yeah. I, mean, I think what's interesting about, I, I think there has to be some impact, right? Like these things are, they might seem small individually, but collectively from these awards that, I mean, just remember this. The first award was just $5 million. And then he yapped his strap about the lady after that $5 million win. And welcome to $83 million world, right? Like, 
These judges are not playing. These judges are not playing. You should have kept your mouth shut, paid your $5 million for what you did to that lady in the dressing room of Bergdorf Goodman. Oh my gosh, don't get me started. But you should have paid your $5 million and gone quietly into the night. I think that these amounts, Rudy Giuliani, $45 million or whatever that he has to pay yep. to the two black pay ladies that. in Georgia, these yep. people are not playing. They yeah. and, and while the, the base might be animated by all of this stuff, where do you hit people in their pocketbooks? Donald Trump's whole entire financial profile is all smoke and mirrors. It's all loans. It's all bankruptcies. It's all whatever, whatever. So you get hit with a couple of these things and we know you can't pay. That's why the court asked him to put the $5 million up beforehand. We can't keep having these empty verdicts where people get awarded a lot of money and never see this money. And so I think to have the court ask for the money up front to ask for a bond. This is helping people understand like whatever Fox is saying, let Fox say, but we are going to get these people their justice. And I can't help but think that as these things progress and as he continues to to lose, I understand how it's animating his base. But I also understand that if you don't have no money, <laughs> you don't have no money. That and, that is a problem. <laughs> and the other thing for our radar is Tish James, the Attorney General of New York, is seeking three hundred and seventy million dollar penalty from Trump and his family business as part of a civil fraud trial that wrapped up this month. So, and that is in January. And he so was, but he was convicted of that, right? Wasn't he convicted mm-hmm. of the mm-hmm. thing? And so now it is just about what the penalty will penalty be, is. right? Yep. So he's lost the case. And yep. if this judge is acting like these other judges, they're not letting people, they're not letting these dudes get away with this. It is, it's interesting to watch. I'm eating popcorn. And like I said last episode, um, I literally have been reading the Trump's The Art of the Deal book because I just was not aware during Trump's not, you know, I've only known mm-hmm. uh, this Trump and, and the little bit of the reality television Trump. So I've been trying to like contextualize him better and just in my own culture brain. And it's really interesting to read about somebody who was just like the first chapter of this book is all his, his a, a week in Trump's life. So it's meeting to meeting, what I'm doing, making this deal, closing this. So it, it it's so interesting to see somebody who's quite literally character is built on how well I can amass wealth and how um, smart I I am when it comes to money it's it's wild to see his demise come not just with like you know moral depravity but also with i can't keep a dollar <laughs> where your whole your whole thing was oh i know how to make a dollar into a million know how to make a million to a billion you know so i think what 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 i thought about a lot this weekend i watched um nikki haley on meet the press and <clears throat> What I thought about a lot this weekend is how much the media has created this character and maintains this character. Um, on Meet the Press, Kristen, well, like I met, I watched because I really wanted to hear what Nikki Haley had to say. I wanted to see if there was anything there, if there was momentum, if there was whatever, whatever. And they spent eighty-five percent of the time talking about Trump. Should he, you know, does she believe that he should get off the ballot? Does she think that he does? Does she think? Well, what the hell? do you think, Nikki? And Kristen, can you ask her that question? What do you stand for, Nikki? What are you about? What are you going to bring? What is important to you? But the media is so enamored of the Trumpishness that we can't even get a clear assessment of other candidates because all they want to ask other candidates is what they think about Mr. Trump. I was watching the 92 NY, um, to your point, I was watching the 92 NY um, talk with um, Liz Cheney 
and her her whole thing is about Trump. And I'm like, yeah. I'm like, sister, if we don't pivot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, Kai, to that point, the, the way that they have propped him up also leads people to believe that there's some brilliance there. That, like, there is some, that something there is, like, really smart or savvy. You're like... No, that man is a clown and clowns are funny and the circus is funny. That is what this is. Not mm-hmm. brilliant. He just says all the things that you've been taught you can't say out loud because they're inappropriate, rude, and bigoted. He says them and people are intrigued by that. So DR brought up Tish James. And as you know, Tish did that investigation of uh, Governor Cuomo, came out that he has sexually harassed people. It was one of the key moments that led to the end of Governor Cuomo. What you might not have known is that right when that was happening, the Department of Justice also opened an investigation into a former governor, Andrew Cuomo. And it just came out. It was like a dump last week that the um, that they concluded that Cuomo violated Title Seven rules against discrimination and retaliation between 2013 and 2021. They said that Cuomo and his staff engaged in, quote, a pattern of practice of discrimination against female employees based on sex. And they found that he retaliated against the women. And this is these are findings from the Department of Justice. They found that he repeatedly subjected women in the office to non-consensual sexual contact, that he gave them gender-based nicknames, and further, that top Cuomo staff, quote, were aware of the conduct and retaliated against four of the women he harassed. Um, Kristen Clark, who writes, who runs the Civil Rights Division, who we love, of the Department of Justice, her quote in a statement is, the conduct in the executive chamber under the former governor, the state's most powerful elected official, was especially egregious because of the stark power differential involved and the victim's lack of avenues to report and redress harassment. Basically, Tish James knew what she was talking about. That's what the Department of Justice yes. said. Uh, Wu Chow. I mean, I, 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 uh, I, Look, I'm not even touching this Cuomo stuff because I I don't know. Um, But but here's what I will say about um, Tish James. Think about and 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 I I will I'm gonna link it to Fannie Willis and to the other woman of color whose name I can't. She's a Caribbean sister. I can't remember her name. Who's over the other Trump case? Think about the pressure that you have to be under. If you are bringing, if you're a black woman bringing these cases against these powerful white men. And what I love about Tish James is she is unafraid. She has dotted every I and crossed every T. She is like, there is a crime here and I'm going to show it to y'all. And so far, she has been right. Now, I don't, I don't know Fannie Willis. I don't know nothing about her. I don't know. I, I hope that these allegations are untrue. And even if they are true, I still hope that she's dotting every I and crossing every T because who you sleep with in your personal life and all of that jazz don't have nothing to do with me. But I hope that you still understand that as a black woman prosecuting these powerful men, you got to have the whole thing buttoned up. And Tish, I think, is giving us a great example of I can show you better than I can tell you. 
Um, so kudos to the Justice Department for coming behind her and underscoring the work that her team has done. It takes, a, I mean, these cases have zillions of documents and lots of investigations and stuff that has to happen. And, and you have to manage this humongous project. And so my hat's off to her and for these other women who are in the arena doing this work. Because it's hard being a Black woman anything. And for them to be literally in the crucible attacking America's favorite politicians is more than a notion. Come on, Black girl lawyers. I see y'all. And it's so important. And I always thought about this when it first when it first came out, how important this particular case is in my head, because the the one thing <laughs> that uh, out of probably many, but I, the one thing that always comes into my mind is that Democrats still have their kind of a, like a, a, a moral center, you know, whereas when I think about people in the in the um, Republican Party, when I think about people like, of course, Trump, Roy Moore, people who have been just accused of horrible things, but then went on to have um, <laughs> actual lives inside of the, um, you know, inside of their, in, it, po- like, political lives. It's why, it's, I think it's so important that when this happens in the Democratic Party, we call it out, we prosecute it, we don't try to um, still make this person a part of our, 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 like, political, the fabric of our, like, our political representation you know and i and i'm really glad that this it's still happening it, it, people are still you know you have black women litigating you uh we're, we're still showing that no we have a moral center we still know what's right or wrong it doesn't matter if this person is powerful to us or on our side wrong is wrong and i think that's so important right now um maybe more than it's i don't want to be you know dramatic but maybe more than it's ever been it seems like it's so important to publicly show no you can't do bad things and stay in this political club just because you're powerful or just because we can use you hey you're listening to pod save the people stay tuned there's more to come rev up your thrills this summer at cedar point on the all-new top thrill 2 drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple launch vertical speedway And it's your last chance to get more fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this limited-time bundle ends June 30th. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up. It can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot people. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? 
Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Nike, Walmart, and Zappos. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use and you can get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers. And Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. I rarely go first, but my news is something that I was like, come on. As you all know, uh, Toni Morrison famously said race is, racism is used as a distraction. And Tony was right about a lot of things. She was certainly right about this. Now, let me, you're not going to, you're going to be surprised about where I end, but let me start with the airplanes. You probably saw that video that went viral where the door of that airplane uh, essentially came off mid-flight. They grounded the flight and they only gave the people in the plane $1,500 as like their recompense for the door literally coming off mid-flight. And that was a Boeing plane. They have, there's been a lot of, uh, pressure on Boeing. They have essentially grounded that particular type of airplane, so it's not flying anymore. Uh, you might have seen that while they were grounded, there was another airline that it was like seven or so, or like a handful of the Boeing airplanes that got grounded. There were loose um, screws that they had to fix. There's a lot of oversight coming to Boeing, blah, blah, blah. What you also should know is that the Republicans have generally been anti-oversight, anti-regulation, simply because it is not good for business. That is their argument. They're like, you put more regulation in, you can make a lot more money when it's not as regulated, blah, 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 blah. So then I look up and I see that the right way of dealing with the airline stuff is to blame it on Black people. Literally, that is the strategy. So Trump, I'll just, uh, Donald Trump Jr., there was something with... Um, a Delta Boeing 757, which is the plane in question. And he tweets, I'm sure this has nothing to do with mandated diversity, equity, and inclusion practices in the airline industry. People are going to die and no one regulating these things gives a, hmm, wheels don't just fall off planes without gross incompetence in question. Um, Charlie Kirk, who is, as you know, one of the right-wing racist uh, folks, he said, I'm sorry if I see a black pilot, I'm going to be like, boy, I hope he's qualified. And the way that they have been trying to essentially fight the regulation of the airline industry is to say the presence of black people is why the planes aren't good or why there are issues. Uh, Matt Getz, who, you know, represented Matt Getz, he said DEI is destroying our major airlines. Libs of TikTok, which is one of the big TikTok accounts, Um they pulled this like whole ad from Virgin Atlantic saying that it was like about pronouns. And you're like, wow, this is really, um, this is really nuts. And then Marjorie Green, who you know is a, just lost her all her mind. She said, I just traveled in the airports across the country just the past few days. You know what I saw in our airports? Migrants, illegal aliens all over in the airport. And I'm bringing it here because... A, I wish there were more Black people in the airline industry. The numbers have essentially not changed. It is flat. 
92% of pilots and flight engineers are white. 92% of them are men. That has essentially been the same as long as we have ever measured the numbers. Uh, the proportion of pilots and flight engineers who are black grew from 2.7% in 2018 to 3.6% in 2018. It's negligible. Like I could tell you all the numbers, but ain't none of them higher than four um, for black people or Asians. Latinos are higher than all of the other people of color and they're a whopping 10%. Um, and women, it's less of them. Women went from nine to 8.3. So, you know, the airline industry remains overwhelmingly white men. That is just who is flying planes or flight engineers. And it just is a fascinating way to see them use race as a way to avoid any accountability for industries, any conversation about regulation and safety. And that race really every single time is the boogeyman. It is the thing that derails people, moves people around, people get excited about it. We even have to address it in forums like the podcast, just so people understand that the racism you're hearing delivered to you with a suit and tie is not true. It is not real. It is just a lie. And I wanted to bring it here because this is one of the things that I was like, really? Of all the things you can say about the airplanes falling apart, it's Black people? And it's like they know once they say it, because of how information specifically now gets spread, they know once they say it, even if we say 100 times, it's because of this. It's because, you know, they know that something going wrong on an airplane, deaths, trauma because the freaking door falls off, whatever they have to pay out is way less than whatever they're cutting. Like, we, that, that's, that's the reason why you could, we could say that 110 times over. But once you just say something in this media landscape in general, it's like you can't almost undo it. It's, it's That's now the new truth. And because you said it and you said it strong and you said it loud, now that's the new truth and that's what's being, that's what's just gonna, like, go in the ethers. And it's just such a you know, moral depravity doesn't begin to, like, articulate how I feel about that. I mean, from where I sit, this doesn't have anything to do with airlines, does it? Right? Absolutely nothing to do with airlines. This is, I mean, diversity, equity, and inclusion, belonging, any kind of initiatives around that are under attack writ large. So we started in academia, and they successfully took out Claudine Gay. All of that, the whole Harvard thing, and all of those other presidents, all women, like these are not coincidences. The whole attack on on academia is an attack on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Now let's take it to the airline industry. Next we'll go to banking. Then we'll go to somewhere else, right? And and all of this stokes the the right wing playbook around these people are coming for your jobs. Ain't nobody coming for the airline people's jobs, as your numbers just told us. But now these people are coming for your jobs. They're unqualified. You are unsafe flying. And that is going to cause, I mean, the people who are worried about jobs, about economic secure insecure, about economic security, about, you know, colorful people gay people, straight people, trans people, uh, whatever, about these other people coming for their jobs, their place in society. This is just another vehicle to serve up that meal that, you know, the that base is ravenous for. And so I think in a couple of weeks, we'll see them go after, they'll, they'll do this airline industry thing for a while. I mean, I fly all the time. I ain't seen no migrants in the airport. 
Look, so <laughs> as far as I know, the migrants don't have enough money to fly in at the border, right? Deal with the border crisis. But uh, I think right now it's airlines and airports, and we'll see it move to the next place until this has touched so many different industries that the scared base is completely riled up because people are coming from them for them at every turn. This is this is so wild. Like it is it is a lie, whole cloth. Right. Like there is nothing truthful about this. And people are carrying it on the news. And that I mean, you know, to your earlier point around what Fox has done to this country, like fake news is not even the right term like this. People just lie, 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 like make up stuff, lie. And our poor, uneducated populace does not have enough critical thinking skills to understand what is right and what is wrong. And that's why they continue to assault education because they want to keep us dumb and uninformed. Mm, well, 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 rewind me a little bit, um, Kaya, because because <laughs> I, I might, I might, my mind might have got got. Because for some of the content that I've been seeing, some of the news that I've been seeing, there is something happening at the airports. <laughs> or is that just like a systemic... Uh, they're just they're making like, is it like kind of oh, what's happening like kind at of like the airports. When, so I have seen a lot of news stories around air, like things happening with these airplanes. Airplanes, and, yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. But that don't have anything to do with people of color. It has nothing no, to do course, with diversity, equity, and inclusion. What, That's my point. Air, yeah, airlines what, are failing for uh, airline safety is a question right now. I, exactly. I guess I want to be super, of, super clear. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. So I want to be the, super clear that there is probably something to look at when it comes to these planes in the sky that we should oh, be concerned yes. about. Whereas, like, I feel like when it comes to the academic stuff, there was there was a whole bunch of uh, to-do about nothing mm-hmm. where I'm like, oh, there's something happened at the airport. Oh, I hear what you're saying. <laughs> right. I, I, I'm sorry. I did not mean to say that doors are not flying off planes, wheels are not <laughs> flying off planes. Those things are all true. Those things are all true. And and my guess is if you look at who works at the Boeing plant, it don't have nothing to do with diversity, equity, and inclusion, I might venture to say. Mm-hmm. I am saying the lie is that any of the safety issues have anything to do with diversity, equity, and inclusion, that's all. And, and I do think there's there's a thread here that, when it comes to the DEI of it all, there has been a massive decrease in company seriousness in pursuing, engaging, institutionalizing. Um, and in my work, I feel like this, this, this sense of meritocracy that a lot of white folks have around, I've worked so hard and, you know, I, you know, I'm not privileged and yada, yada, yada. I do think there is a through line through if there is truth around us all being equal, then their whole concept of meritocracy actually crumbles. And I think that is that helps set up this lie of it all, but it also impacts our everyday lives and how we're functioning or not functioning because folks are just so unable to see all the inequalities, but then also how sometimes, in some cases, black people out and overperform. So we don't want to don't want to acknowledge that either. Kaya Henderson. 
Miles you Johnson. You better say it, girl. Say it. <laughs> so, so I think it's it's that too. Because I'm also just like this. This is all. It's everywhere, right? It's everywhere, and it's not just like Trump's base. It's actually like white progressives too. So, you know, I think it's it's a it's a a, a bigger construct around racism that we have not even begun to pull apart in a way that, um, well, it just, it creates conditions for this. And I was even, sorry. I didn't even think about, you're right, how this is also a setup for that conversation about meritocracy. And it's like totally a lie. And like, like they, it's like the scam way to do it. But this idea that like to question the qualifications and all that stuff. Like this is the, this is the other way to do it. You know, like this yeah. is the back end way to get you to have that conversation. Yep. Cause then we start saying like the numbers aren't true and da-da-da. then it becomes, well, who should be a pilot? What makes a good pilot? Did it, you know, like it sneaky. Um, to your point, DR, y'all, y'all are just so, y'all are so smart this morning. I'm just, <laughs> kept my brain ticking. But, um, to your point, I was just talking to, um, my friend the other day. And so one of my favorite people, writers, is Fran Lebowitz. And she has this thing where she talks about the art. She talks about art. And, um, she says, well, you can hear in the language that how we think about art has changed because when she was young, it was called the art world. And now it's called the art market. And mm. which tells what is important about art now yeah. is really, it's about the finance and stuff like that. And what I noticed, and I heard her say this maybe like two years ago, and what I noticed in front of my, right in front of me, a lot of places went from calling themselves organizations in 2020. Now they're back to being companies. (laughs) And it's really interesting to even think about how that language has shifted and letting you know what we care about. And that when it was this um, kind of rebrand, this, you know, around around, um, equity and diversity, that everybody was an organization. And now... That people are figuring out, well, you know, rebranding as good as a good company and as as equal and diverse is not necessarily profitable. So we're gonna go back to being a company <laughs> and and being here for the profit is is really interesting. That even down to the language, you can hear this kind of shift that's happening mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to the right. So I brought this article to the podcast because it sent me on a little bit of an emotional roller coaster. I read the headline, which is leading museums remove native displays amid new federal rules. And I was angry. What do you mean we're taking down native displays? That's not okay. And then I read the article and I was like, oh, wait a minute. There are some good reasons why we're taking down native displays. And then as I finished the article and really thought about this, I got mad again. And so I was like, okay, any issue that has me going up and down is worth a conversation on the podcast. And really what this is about is the fact that this month there were some new federal regulations that went into effect. And these regulations require museums and other institutions to obtain consent from Native American tribes before displaying or performing research on Native American cultural subjects. And these new regulations are actually, um, they were initiated by the Biden administration, and they're actually corrective action to speed up the repatriation of Native American remains, like human remains, funerary objects, and other sacred items that were required by a 1990 law called the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, right? In 1990, the federal government said, museums, get a people their stuff back. This is human remains, sacred funeral stuff, important cultural objects. 
give them their stuff back. And since the 90s, it has been really, really slow in happening, right? Um, in fact, this process has dragged on for decades. And so the Biden administration jumps in and says, new policies, you know, the regulations require a shorter timeline for the repatriation of things. And the new regulations actually say you got to you got to do this with the tribes. Tribes have more authority throughout the process. Um, the feds are required to defer to Native American traditional knowledge of lineal descendants, Indian tribes and Native Hawaiian organizations. And our, our tribal friends say, even though the new regulations have only been in effect for two weeks, they already feel a shift in the tenor of talks with the institutions. So that's a good thing. Um, in fact, uh, one of the quotes in the article says, this represents a major shift in practices when it comes to Native American exhibitions at some of the country's leading museums that will be noticeable to visitors. How is it noticeable to visitors? Well, museums are actually covering up displays and removing items from their galleries. In fact, the American Museum of Natural History in New York, which is one of the biggest and most visited museums, um, is closing two major exhibit halls that show Native American objects, which is about 10,000 feet of of space that 10,000 square feet of exhibition space that will now be off limits to visitors. And they get about 4.5 million visitors a year. Um, I'm worried about that. I'm worried about that. I'll come back to that. Um, there is a woman who's the director of the Museum of Anthropology at the University of Missouri, and she says, this is human rights work, and we need to think about it as that and not as science. And she's adding five new staff members to work on repatriation because this stuff is complicated, right? It's one thing to say, give the stuff back to the people. It's another thing to figure out the right way to do it, to figure out a way that honors the deceased, that respects the cultural practices around how you treat these things. Um, and a top priority of these new regulations is repatriating more than 96,000 individual human remains that are in institutional holdings. 96,000 individual human remains that are in, in institutional holdings. I brought this to the podcast because, again, this, to me, this demonstrates the complexities of undertaking a healing process, right? It is net positive that the federal government is requiring museums and institutions to treat these artifacts, human remains, cultural items of cultural significance with the respect that they deserve in an attempt to heal relationships with the Native American community. And it's hard. It's not easy. Um, I also think that it is significant and, and worrisome that as people visit museums and cultural uh, places where we places that hold cultural significance for us, in many cases, they will not see some of this stuff because the institutions are wrestling with how to to deal with this. Um, and and then um, and then I got mad because I was like, okay, 
good for my Native people. But what about Black folks? Because y'all got our brains and our bodies all over the place. And in fact, there's no federal regulations for you requiring to that require you to give us our stuff back. In fact, the Natural History Museum has at the Smithsonian, the Washington posted an investigation, a like whole expose. It is, it's a beautiful thing if you go on the Washington Post website to see this racial brain collection and all of this stuff that these people do that people had no idea even existed. But according to the Washington Post investigation, the Natural History Museum has a collection of over 30,000 body parts that people didn't know about until 15 minutes ago. Guess how many of those are Native American? 15,000. So there's a whole nother 15,000 that you know who they belong to. They belong to us. They belong to people that look like me and you. And there is no regulation, no requirement, no process, no anything on giving those pieces back to the communities where they belong. And so on the one hand, I want to commend the feds for undertaking what is a difficult, painful healing attempt at healing. Um, I want to charge our museums and institutions to figure this out. Like, yes, it's hard, but if you're committed to it, like the lady in Missouri, you hire more staff, you put the resources in place, and you do the right thing. And and I want to challenge them all to do the right thing, not just for the Native American community, but for all of the folks, for Black people, for Asian people, for, you know, the disabled people, for gay people, for trans people, for everybody who you have experimented on, institutionalized, stolen body parts and all of these heinous things that have happened. We all deserve the kind of accountability, the kind of process and collaboration in restoring dignity to our ancestors and our forebearers. That's all I got. <sighs> Kyle, you definitely went the way that I was thinking. I was like, okay, this is fantastic. And this also should be the blueprint for our artifacts. It should be the blueprint for our body parts. Um, and we this also should be, you know, this is a lofty expectation, but I'm like, go ahead and send this blueprint to Buckingham Palace because <laughs> there's stuff, some stuff that mm-hmm. they need to return to. Um, because I really think that this era of, and it's a huge era, long era. So I'm not trying to make it seem like it's a, it's a, uh, you know, a Megan the Stallion song, like short, but like this huge era of, you know, these institutions are important and we get to extract everything around the world and put them under our roof because this is what makes them important. I don't, I don't. I, I, I don't think that's true. And I think that um, museums are going to have to change the way, what they find important, what they center. Again, I went to the Guggenheim. I'm at the Brooklyn um, Museum, like, almost weekly now because I live down the street. And um, I think there's enough art that is that can be obtained in, in history that can be obtained um, morally and, and also enough art that's being made in the in modern times to fit a museum. And I think that we don't need to always... I don't think we need to exploit things or steal things in order for these institutions to stay important. And I think we have to totally reimagine what makes these institutions important uh, important because there's there's just stolen things in, in, in everywhere and I and I and the, what this article did do for me too was think about what psychologically does that do to somebody 
when they see their history umbrella and just cornered inside of this building, if, I, if that's making sense. So what does it mean that something as vast as Native American culture and history and death and tradition is a corner and a section inside of this bigger house? I think that that says something and communicates something that, um, that, 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 the through line between that and white supremacy is, is to me like very clear. And I think that if we are really trying to dismantle some of these ideologies that have been destroying us, it has to start there. It has to start with doing this like harder work. So thank you for bringing this because I love to hear it. And I do think it should be a blueprint for how other things should be taken care of as well. And and my mind also went to the, it it went immediately to Sarah Bartman. Otherwise, uh, AKA hot and tot Venus. Um, and what's interesting is Kaya, your article took me to another article where the field museum in Chicago was doing the same things, but what I didn't in terms of repatriation, but what I didn't know about the field museum is that it evolved from, um, the, the world's Columbian exposition in, in, in 1893. All that to say like Sarah, there were all these exposition and like world fairs that happened in America at the turn of the century. And what it was, was basically displaying folks of color to exoticize them, to exploit them. And then for Sarah Bartman, her remains were with Paris. They were on display until 1974 and not repatriated until 2002. So it's, Again, y'all, it's just like larger issues around this country in particular and in the world, the Western world, quite frankly, not not reckoning with what has happened (laughs) in terms of racism, oppression, etc. And so we still have all the lineage of all these things because we haven't addressed it as, as, as a big cultural social issue. So it's just... It's wild that even nine ninety six thousand, like the the, the remains of ninety six thousand indigenous people, like it's being held held in an it's like that is wild, absolutely wild. There, there are two things that come to mind that I just. Um... Want to say one is that the scope of what the museums has has always just I, as an adult I appreciate it more than I ever understood as a kid. Like as a as a kid, I went to a museum. I'm like, oh, I see the stuff on the thing. I just didn't understand that this is a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of the collection. Just like didn't get it. So I am so reading this. I'm like, they have the Birch Bank canoe of somebody they got darts from 10,000 BC like they got all this stuff just in the cabinets in the back that we have never even heard about that is that blows our mind so I'm like the the scope of the theft is just vaster than anything I think our minds have been able to wrap around because we only see the things on display so even DR as you talk about the the people and the bodies and the remains and you know, the article very gently is like well you know they can't put the remains out on display so they're just like in storage you're like well yeah they I mean they stole people's bodies it's sort of crazy so that is wild the second thing that I'm that I am thinking through is I hope that they I almost want the halls to be redone about the repatriation you know 
Like I want mm. there to be a hall, the hall of repatriation. Like I don't want people to ever forget the amount of death. Like I want there to be pictures of everything they stole and the hall could be like stole, stolen past or something. I don't know. Like I, I want people to be for, you know, because the worst version of this is they give it all back and then they paint the hall over something else and people never, like this whole moment is gone of theft in taking people's culture. Exactly. Like, I just don't want that to happen either. Don't go anywhere. More Politic the People's coming. Tired of fighting your kids to make their bed? Say hello to Betty's. The unique design lets your kids make their bed with just a zip. Our patented bedding includes everything you need, a fitted sheet, top sheet, and comforter in one seamless piece that zips together. Kids love the feeling of accomplishment when they can make their bed by themselves every day. Make your mornings easier and visit Bettys.com. That's B-E-D-D-Y-S dot com. With chocolate treats mixed into dark chocolate ice cream, the Tillamook Chocolate Collection is a chocolate game changer because the thing that pairs best with chocolate is more chocolate. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream. Extraordinary Dairy. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com and this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. is from the Daily Beast and it's so many of my interests in one. So one, it's black filmmaking. So this young black filmmaker who I'm now obsessed with, Jasmine Jones, um, who has made this documentary that is based on Mavis Beacon. Um, now getting into the other thing I'm interested in, and we've talked, we've actually talked about this on this podcast is black representation, particularly women's black representation and like what that means in American culture. Um, and so let me tell you who Mavis Beacon is, or really is not. <laughs> so Mavis Beacon, um, teaches typing was this classroom staple in the nineties, um, for ki- kids who wanted to become proficient, proficient in typing. So Mavis Beacon was really presented as this trailblazer for Black women in her field. Um, she, was, she was lauded for her contributions. Uh, students who learned her methods filmed testimonials to thank her. Her career was also lauded at the Kennedy Center by people like Barack Obama and Oprah Winfrey. And even our girl Wendy Williams went viral saying Mavis was an icon in the legend. Thank you, Wendy. The issue is, is that Mavis Beacon is not a real person. Um, and so this software company um, basically hired this woman, Renee Lesper- Lesperance, um, who's a Haitian-born woman 
um, who was discovered working at a, a, a department store counter at the game. So the developers of the software asked her to model as a typing instructor. She was reportedly paid $500 for her image and photographed once. Um, and over the years, she's only given, um, oh, and she has never given an on the record interview and, and it has basically disappeared. So here comes Jasmine Jones, who first encountered, also, I love this because it's like the young people really interested in the 90s. And I love that for Gen Z because it k- keeps us connected. So Jasmine Jones, who at eight years old, she's from the Bay Area, she first encountered Mavis Beacon. Um, uh, she first encountered this, uh, the, the software game, the Make Mavis Beacon teacher software. Um, she says that she's one of Mavis's, one of her pupils. I owe this woman so much. When I was learning the game, they have these little black hands that mimic typing. It was so amazing to see a digitized version of a body like mine on screen at such a foundational age. But as Jones grew older, she realized that Beacon can be a bit of a problematic fave. As she's continued to work in the digital arts and to think about self-representation as a Black woman, she wanted to retrace her thinking steps and ask questions like, why was Mavis Beacon Black? What was the racialized and gender casting choice about? So this documentary basically is about that. It's about this journey, like really like a DIY journey. I can't wait to see this documentary. It just pre- uh, premiered at Sundance. Um, based a, a, a journey of who this woman is and why, you know, why she never gave an interview, why she disappeared. But more importantly, how was it such that this woman was built up in the psyches of so many people? <laughs> Um, as essentially a real person. Um, so I just wanted to bring this to the pod because I thought it was so interesting. And when we talk about Black women's leadership, or even when we talk about Black tropes, right? When we talk about, you know, a Michael Jordan or Oprah Winfrey and like what those kind of like exceptional Black people have meant in our construct of how we think about Black folks and racism, I just found this to be so interesting that like, you can make up a black person that really, you know, somewhat does something for both for, for white folks and black folks. Um, and, and, and really interestingly satisfy whatever the, the, the cultural needs of those populations are and be successful for so many years. So I don't know. I just, I thought this was fascinating and was curious if you all, were students of Mavis speaking teaches typing so so I'll go um I'll go quicker because I know people are gonna have brilliant things to say and I can't have mine get overshadowed by somebody's brilliance <laughs> really Miles I need you to go after me I'm just getting my little talking points in here um, okay, so what I so I am a student of Mavis speaking uh, I did not follow all the way through but I took it and we had we had a part of computer class that was typing and Mavis speaking was that girl, as the kids would say. Um, now, what I find really interesting about Mavis speaking is that she was working as a saleswoman at Saks when they found her and pay her $500 for a, a photo shoot. So that's like one. But the more fascinating thing about that is that they replaced her on the cover with just other black women and kept calling it Mavis speaking. I think that is like Aunt Viv. Wild. 
Yes. So she is the first model. And then they <laughs> like I'm there. And then they just keep um they keep moving her. They keep swapping out her photo with another black with other black women. And I, you know, just the one of somebody will say it much better than me, but needing black people's validation to move things culturally is as old as this country is. And this one is just such a wild, wild thing. And the way they try and soften it when other articles have written about this is like, there was no industry around influencers. They didn't really uh, exploit her because this was one of the first times and blah, 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 blah. It's like, y'all made a gazillion dollars off of this woman who we thought was an expert. And uh, you exploited her. So fascinating. Um, I'm I'm going I'm going next. No 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 sir. All of us all of us right. We're like, Miles, you got to go last on the culture stuff. Especially because I did not know anything about Mavis Bacon until this conversation. Um, I, I looked it up and I was like, how come everybody else knows about Mavis and I don't? And it is because she was introduced in 1987, which was my junior year in high school. And I had already taken typing. So I was past that and didn't have to go back to learn typing. And so I missed the whole cultural moment that was Mavis Bacon. But it reminded me a lot of the Aunt Jemima story, right? Um the appropriation of Black women as validators, um, as external validators for some product or something, the the disembodiment of the character, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Aunt Jemima, there were lots of different people who portrayed that character. And it is the irony of it to me is... You know, people think we're stupid. People think that we, you know, are lazy. People think that we are whatever. But when you need somebody to endorse a product and make it valid, if a black woman is using it, then it must be good, right? And so I, I find the the irony around, you know, the broader society's perception of black people versus, you know, their willingness to use us to endorse products um, as, frankly, um, an, a real example of a diseased mind. Like, this is what race, racism makes you do two different things at the same time, I think. And now I'm excited to hear about Miles' profound reflection on <laughs> this article. <laughs> <laughs> that is too much pressure. I think I, I, what I was going to say was the through line between this and Uncle Tom and uh, and Aunt Jemima is just it's a straight line, right? Um, two things that really that really stuck out to me about this is how right now everything is so simple where it's like black people get out you know or black or for some people it's like black people don't be a part of it but there's something about them creating Mavis Beacon her last name being Beacon like Beacon of Hope (laughs) but like something about making her this like exceptional excellent black woman who took all of her brilliance and all of her um, talent and said what's the best thing that I can do with this help a white company and help y'all get into this same type of like this capitalist um, cult like that to me is what's interesting because the people that you listed 
I ain't about to get invited to nobody's parties. But the people, the people that you listed, when I think about Barack Obama, when I think about Oprah, they sell us the same idea that we mm. are this brilliant, that we are this, um, that we work this hard, that we went to these exceptional colleges. And what is the best thing that we decided to do? Be a president. What is the best thing we decided to do? Get our own channel so um, everybody can watch us. What is the best thing we decided to do? Uh, get on the airwaves. And even with Wendy Williams, she got absorbed into the cable, you know, television like monster as well and they make they know that they know that something about taking our excellence and taking our um uh taking our maybe talents for something and and making a assist the 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 the, the, the broader mainstream white cultural project there's something that d- happens to us psychologically that's the first thing that came to my mind the second thing is this is a warning tale cuz this feels also yes this happened in the 90s but this feels very futurist because now when it comes to ai now when it comes to deep fakes we know that taylor swift just had all those um sexual deep fakes happen with her where there's this Taylor Swift's likeness being used to create pornographic images. We know that people more than ever are able, and companies more than ever, are able to make fake mascots. And this may be something that is not just this one-off, well, this is a weird thing that happened in the 90s. Now, all types of companies that understand the value of certain types of personhood, certain types of identities, are able to create a a a person and create a mascot and if you if we don't want to research every single person or research every single brand ambassador or influencer because who got time for that then we'll before we know it see oh wow that wasn't a black queer non-binary androgynous person as they then pronounce that was a series of codes and they knew that this person that we just made up can actually sell more underwear, sell more products than this other person. And the, who's and and although we were able to make this like 3D uh symbolism that everybody loves, this is still going towards um the the same people who are always getting money. So, yeah, this is a very interesting story to me, but also I think it's a warning because I think that we're only getting heavier into the, the our capacity to do that. I don't I don't think that this is just this one-off 90s relic thing. I think that a lot of companies are going to be able to do that. And, and last 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 thing I'll say is that I've seen fashion brands in particular already get in trouble for this. I've seen a lot of fashion brands get called out for using models that were AI and people didn't know. So it's not just something that I think might happen. We've already seen this, but I think there's something about her having a history and having a name and having a, a, a culture and a biography around her makes it even a little bit more haunting. Oh, that was good. That was interesting. Okay. So I'm short and sweet this week um, because it is the 24th. So, hey, y'all know I love an anniversary. I love, uh, did you know this happened a few years ago? Because I think that our culture is so quick. And I also think that I'm very, oh, with every song and Billboard song that I hear, I become more appreciative that I was born in 91 and there was some bodies of work that a were terrific but also lasted you know what i think about how long um people are were critiquing beyonce or not even critiquing her but talking about how beyonce let an album ride for two years and i'm like yeah used to be able to let something ride for two years and tour it and a video came out two years after the release of the album and it was still push it and um this is the big uh build up to the fact that it's the 24th anniversary of d'angelo's voodoo 
the reason why I want to bring this to the podcast is not just because we love D'Angelo and D'Angelo was fine and D'Angelo is was making great music, but also because D'Angelo changed music with that album and D'Angelo really began to bring in different sounds so when we listened to what was happening a curse word now but Diddy what Diddy was making when we listened to the um, bubblegum pop D'Angelo along with the other Soquarians like um, Erica Badu and The Roots and um, even like Goody Mob I will put into that cate- that category and Jill Scott of course they were beginning to make music that sounded like the music that was in the 70s and they were able to kind of um for lack of better words, or maybe this is the perfect word, preserve a sound aesthetic that was being attacked. Was, was Hip-hop was beca- getting out of the golden age and was getting more commercial as um, R&B pop was being, um, was becoming mainstream, but then all, like with Brandy and Monica, but was also being um, pirated by Christina Aguilera and Britney Spears's. There were these groups of people, and D'Angelo was at the forefront of these people who were really preserving a sound aesthetic and a point of view that I think is really important. And even when I think about artists like Maxwell and Rafael Sadiq and Amel LaRue and Guapale. Um, so I say all to say is I think it's super important to, um, to, to, to recognize that. And then I guess the bigger thing that I wanted to point out what's happening in culture now is that I think that that is not absolutely happening in culture because voodoo didn't just come out voodoo was a successful that's what i always say about erica badu too i'm like erica badu didn't just come out erica badu came out and went platinum a few times <laughs> and lauren hill didn't just come out she came out and she won awards and went platinum a few times as well and i always fear that there's not this kind of deliberate preserving of certain sound aesthetics and certain points of view in our current music. And I think when I think about albums that did this masterfully, I have to think about um I have to think about D'Angelo. And I don't want to totally discredit millennial and Gen Z and current generations because I did just go see Samara Joy at the Blue Note. And I think that is a young woman who is totally preserving a certain sound aesthetic and point of view in this current um time. And I hope and pray that there are more and more people who not necessarily just mimic old, old jazz sounds, but care about the drum, care about the uh, things that are particularly African about what we bring to music, and know that if we don't preserve this point of view, then it's just gonna we're just gonna be left with this kind of very flat, unimpressive. Um, uninvolving type of music that is just not good for the soul or the mind. So, yeah, I wanted to bring the uh, remind everybody about D'Angelo's Voodoo this week. Um, if y'all have any D'Angelo memories, because you know I was just a young thing uh, with D'Angelo, but I will say, keeping it very PG, but that was my that was my awakening. That was my awakening. I, I don't know if y'all didn't know this, but I, I'm not straight. I'm not straight. And D'Angelo helps solidify that for me. <laughs> so shout out to D'Angelo with that entitled video. <laughs> that, that was worth the price of admission, honey. Oh my God, I learned so much. I learned so much. The awakening, yes. Yes. Yes, yes. I mean, you cannot talk about this album without talking about not just how do you feel i think the real title is untitled but like that video changed videodom uh period the end uh and i read cuz you know i was like okay let me read something about 
more than what I know, which is I love the video too. Um, but I, what I read was he became so uncomfortable. Like he's such a musician and was dedicated to musicianship and plays multiple instruments and, you know, really wanted to be prince-ish in, in his, in his artistry and became so disillusioned and disappointed that that video cast him more into sex symboldom than into the sort of music, um, iconography that he wanted, that he ended up really sliding after that album um, into alcoholism and depression and drug abuse and had a really rough time out of that album because as much as as heralded as it was and how much of a star it made him, it was not who he wanted to be in the musical world. And it reminded me that all celebrity ain't good celebrity, um, that, you know, who you want to be as an artist is not always controlled by you and is controlled by the people who want to make money or who want to sell a particular image. And so while that image has resonance and endures for us, it is actually a point of pain for him. Um, and so I thought that was a really interesting thing um, to remember. I mean, he's such an amazing artist. I saw him... Um, D'Angelo and and uh, the Black Messiah is that the name of the new mm. of the latest the iteration? Yeah, I saw I saw him in concert with the Black Messiah and the musicianship of this dude. I mean, he played different instruments. He pulled all kinds of '70s soul and funk. Like what he his music is. It's different. It, it's just different. And it's different in a way that resonates with who we have been, but there is also a futuristic feel to it. So it connects the old and the new. Like, I, I don't know where this cat is right now, but we need some more of that is all I will say. And thank you for bringing a um, a very, like, uh, like, this was a good time in Black music. Um, this was a good time. And thank you for reminding us of it. I also don't know why I claim D'Angelo as a DC person. He's from Richmond, but <laughs> he's from so Richmond. <laughs> during, but this was, but man, I got to do something about my city. But growing up in DC in the '90s, there was so much music everywhere, and D'Angelo, Jill Scott, Eric Kabadu, they would always do almost like a festival at Post Merriweather Pavilion. Merriweather Post Pavilion. And I would go, everyone would go, everyone would go. And then it was also just infused with like, it still felt like Marvin Gaye. It felt like Earth, Wind & Fire. It felt like Maze and Frankie Beverly, just like this genre. And it also was then punctuated by Chuck Brown and Rare Essence and a bunch of DC go-go bands. So it just was like, in the 90s, just Black music everywhere. So that's my memory, really, Miles, is that it just was, you know, because it was also like, it was this, but then we were coming off of like, for me growing up, coming off of like, in the 80s, Janet Jackson and Another Bad Creation and New Edition. And like, it just was always vibing. And I feel like we had so many more spaces for all of that to happen. So Shout out to D'Angelo. I'm just making you from Southeast D.C., or at least your honorary. So we appreciate you. <laughs> Kaya, I didn't know that he spiraled after this. I didn't know that that 
that it impacted him very differently than the way that it sat with so many people and such an interesting commentary on how your best thing is not yours when you put it out, you know, like even when it is amazing and incredible, you can only hope that people do with it what you want to be done with it. And sometimes they do something else with it. Um, so that is really, I'm going to, I'm going to go read about that after this. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Positive the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out and make sure you rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Positive the People is a production of Cricket Media. It's produced by AJ Moultrie and mixed by Evan Sutton. Executive produced by me. And special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, D.R. Ballinger, and Miles E. Johnson. Tired of fighting your kids to make their bed? Say hello to Betty's. The unique design lets your kids make their bed with just a zip. Our patented bedding includes everything you need, a fitted sheet, top sheet, and comforter in one seamless piece that zips together. Kids love the feeling of accomplishment when they can make their bed by themselves every day. Make your mornings easier and visit Betty's.com. That's B-E-D-D-Y-S.com.